Amen, brethren. We'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 is our text for this morning. If you're able to stand with me, please do so for the reading of God's Word and honor of God's Word. As we reminded you before, remember that this is God's authoritative, inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. Amen? I want to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, but we'll zero in in verses 3 through 6. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as I think back at my own Christian walk and Christian journey, you know, I can think of person after person, name after name, of people who've been in the church for a time, but eventually disappeared, mostly never to be seen again with, with few exceptions. When they were around for a time, they seemed, these individuals, to be genuine Christians. They were doing everything that we are doing even this morning. They attended church, sang songs, even served. They gave tithes and offerings and all of that. But eventually they stopped all of these activities altogether. And the question is, what happened? How could someone seem to be all in, but eventually flame out? Eventually even become hostile to Christ and to Christianity and to the Bible? I think in answering this question, I think the the text before us is so helpful because this particular passage here, verses 3 through 6, reminds us that if you and I are going to stand firm in the gospel, we should make sure that our reliance is not on self achievement, but that our reliance is upon Christ and Christ alone. Now, remember where we've been, if you recall, Paul has made a, a, a transition in this letter. He's turned the corner from instructions in chapter 2 about unity and humility and great examples to follow to now in chapter 3, this solemn warning and caution concerning the creeping in of false teaching in the church at Philippi. There's a group of individuals called the Judaizers who in essence are saying, it's good that you have Jesus. We're not saying that you shouldn't have faith in Christ, but you also need to adhere to certain aspects of the Mosaic law. And especially, make sure that you are circumcised if you're a male. And as we said last week, this was a direct attack on the sufficiency of Christ. This was a clear departure from salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul says, beware, beware, beware. Three different times to accentuate the seriousness of the matter. Take caution, take caution, take caution. Look after yourself. Be on watch, in other words. Paul understands that the souls of people are at stake. If there's a distortion of the gospel, right? If the medicine has been polluted, then people are going to get sick and remain sick, right? So he wants to make sure that there is a, an unadulterated gospel, that we stand firm in the gospel of God's saving grace. Because when people are relying on anything but Christ, there is no salvation. There is no Christianity. And there are many people like this in churches, brethren, who come in and out of the church, but over time, over time it becomes evident that their faith is not genuine, that their faith was on self-reliance, that their faith was rooted in other things, not the right person. And you see, time and truth go together, giving of time and, and with testing Eventually, you're going to see the sincerity of a person's faith that's going to be exposed or revealed. 
And so this is why passages like these are very important for us if we're going to stand firm in the Gospel. Paul has just cautioned the Philippian church right in the previous two verses, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, about a counterfeit Gospel, and in particular verse 2. And now he wants to present to them what a genuine follower looks like. He's exposed the counterfeit, but now he wants to expound on the authentic so that we would be people who are the real deal. That we would make sure that we are truly from the heart people who are followers of Christ. And so let's look at these together, these verses, verses 3 through 6. And you need to write this down first and foremost. True Christians, true Christians practice heartfelt worship. True Christians practice heartfelt worship. To be a Christian is to always be cultivating a heart for God. Christians are not people who are comfortable simply going through the motions. Simply, you know, doing religious deeds on the outside. Devoid of heart and love and devotion to God. And Paul knew a thing or two about this. About being superficial and heartless in his worship. Trusting in his misguided and ill-informed, misdirected religiosity rather than truly worshiping God from the heart based upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now as a Christian, he describes himself, as well as all other true Christians, notice in verse 3, as the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Let me tell you about what true circumcision looks like, he says. Let me tell you who truly are the people of God, who truly are the real deal and not fakes or a facade. The true circumcision, by which, by which in this context means those who are true believers, genuine Christians, he says, are those who worship God or worship in the Spirit of God. We worship in the Spirit of God. True Christians fundamentally are worshipers. What does it mean to worship? It means to ascribe worth or value to something or to someone. In this case, to ascribe worth or value to Christ, the object of our worship as Christians, if it's heartfelt worship, the object of our worship is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important, brethren. This is so important for us to remember. Because there are people who do not worship from the heart. They come to church, they sing songs, they serve, they even give to the Lord tithes and offerings and all of that, but their hearts are far from God. And I'm not talking about the common struggles, the seasons of life. I'm talking about as the the characteristic pattern of their life. And they're perfectly comfortable in that. Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Speaking of the religious leaders, we don't want to be that way. Paul says, no, true heartfelt worship is in the Spirit of God. By which he means two things. It's internal worship, meaning that it is heartfelt, it is genuine and sincere from the heart. But even more so, it's supernaturally fueled by the Spirit of God. It's not of the flesh. True worship is heartfelt because the indwelling Holy Spirit fuels that worship and produces that kind of worship if you're a true Christian. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is Spirit with a capital S, or a lowercase s rather, and those who worship Him must do so in spirit and truth. In spirit meaning from a heart of sincerity, genuine from the heart. In the truth means as He is revealed in the Word, right? Truth is reality. We must worship God as He is revealed in, the, in His Word for who He is and as He is revealed in His Word. By implication, I think the challenge for us this morning is this. We need to make sure that we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That we are not just going through the motions when we open our Bibles each and every day in the quietness of our own time before the Lord. That we are not just going through the motions when we gather for worship corporately, especially on Sundays or in our small groups or midweek events that may be taking place. We need to be challenged this morning, brethren, to the reality that we must be engaged with God and not succumbing to a sort of heartless religiosity. 
devoid of heart worship. To be a Christian is to be in relationship with God each and every day, ascribing worth and value to God in reverential worship. People ask, should Christians fear the Lord? What's the answer? Yes, but in a different sense, right? We are no longer under the condemnation of God, under His judgment. Jesus said it is final, it is finished, His sacrifice for sins. But we should fear the Lord in the sense that there's this reverential awe that daily we are cultivating in our hearts by the grace of God and that we are fleshing out in the context of corporate life and worship. Reverential awe in that sense. We should be fostering that before the Lord. Is this your heart? Are you truly engaged with God even at this moment? Are you worshiping God from the heart? You know, those of us who are married, imagine this. Imagine living with your spouse but never talking to your spouse. Imagine never spending time with them. Imagine never enjoying them, never serving them, never laying your life down for them. Would that be considered sincerely a relationship? Even a relationship where that person feels valued by you, cherished by you, treasured by you. Well, brethren, it's even more the case with God. Why would you think that you have a relationship with God if you don't worship Him? If you don't cherish Him? If you don't treasure Him? If you don't ascribe worth and value to Him? Why would you... Think that you have a relationship with God if you don't spend time with Him in the Word, listening to Him speak to you through His Word and speaking to Him in prayer. If you don't do what He says, if you're not pursuing a relationship with Him. You see, the natural man, the man who is not in Christ, who doesn't have the Spirit of God, deceives himself or herself into focusing on external acts of religiosity but their hearts are far from God and they think that is following after the Lord. They come to church, partake of activities, even fellowship, being around other believers, singing, listening to the Word of God, even practicing later on the Lord's Supper or communion as we're going to partake of after this, even give money to the church. And all of these practices bring them a sense of, of self-satisfaction and, and it can be done just for self-worship. But their hearts are far from God. It's just religiosity, no relationship. Because external ritual and religion does not equal relationship. Just because you do good works or partake of Christian activities does not make you a Christian if your heart is disengaged as the pattern of your life and you're not worshiping God in spirit and in truth, following after Jesus and walking in loving obedience and adherence to His Word because you love Him and because you worship Him and because it's joyful obedience rather than burdensome and duty-driven type of religiosity. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were the most zealous, most ritualistic, most externally moral people. And you know what Jesus called them? He called them, you whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Your hearts are not right. It doesn't matter how good you look on the outside. Your heart doesn't belong to me. And he accused them of a righteousness devoid of heart transformation, devoid of heartfelt worship. And he said to the multitudes, unless your righteousness, multitudes, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those were strong words of warning to them. Oh, brethren, may this not be said of us. Or friend, may this not be said of you. True worshipers, true Christians are those who have the Spirit of God residing in them and who value and genuinely worship God in holiness from the heart as the pattern of their lives. Psalm 51 and verse 16 says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, that which pleases God, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, even in the Old Testament, it wasn't about the sacrifices if the heart wasn't there. God wasn't just about offering after offering after offering if your heart was far from Him. It wasn't even about physical circumcision. It was about heart circumcision. Does my, does, do I dwell in your heart? 
Are you sincerely worshiping me? Otherwise, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your external deeds. If your heart's not there. Next in verse 3, notice he says, genuine Christians are those who glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in Christ Jesus means that, that our rejoicing and our boasting, our ground for boasting is in, is in Christ alone. Here Paul is asserting right, joy in the exclusivity of Jesus. As we looked at this last week of the joy, having joy in Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, and this is the emphasis, emphatically, I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And elsewhere in John chapter 10, verse 7, he said, I myself am the door of the sheep. He asserted his exclusivity. In other words, the way to come into a right relationship with God and to worship God sincerely is through the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively. And to glory in Christ is to place our full confidence in Jesus alone, not in ourselves, to derive our joy from Him and in that union that we have with Christ. How do you know that true conversion has taken place in your life? When your greatest treasure, your greatest ground of boasting, when it's all said and done, when you lay on your pillow at night, is Christ. Christ. Without Him, I am nothing. Right? Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And see, we don't simply rejoice in Christ. Not only is He our ground for boasting upon our conversion, right? When He saves us from hell, it's for the rest of our lives that we glory in Christ. Not in ourselves. Right? Throughout our whole life now, we spend the rest of our life responding to His love for us by rejoicing and glorying in Him. That's what Paul is saying. Our glory is in Christ Jesus. Our ground for boasting is Jesus alone, not our works. It's the heart of Paul when he said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love that. I've died to myself, my only ground for glorying is in Christ. Is that your heart today, brethren? That your ground for boasting is Jesus and Jesus alone? And notice in chapter 3, verse 13 of Philippians, he talks about the supreme purpose and pursuit of his life, right? Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, for Paul, Christ was the prize of infinite value. The pearl of great price was Christ and is Christ. Christ is the greatest treasure. And when you possess Christ, you have it all. You have everything. He's enough. And so the Christian's boast, the true believer's boast, is always for the rest of his or her life, only Christ. We now glory in Christ Jesus. Coupled with this, notice what he says in verse 3. We glory in Christ Jesus and conversely, right? We put no confidence in the flesh. And the flesh here in verse 3 is really the life lived independent of God. It's works in the flesh by natural means, that do nothing to gain you merit before the Lord. Walking in the flesh. We don't put confidence in the flesh. Listen, one way, great way to think about our Christianity is this, that as Christians we are now about exalting and making much of Jesus and de-elevating the flesh or the self, right? The life lived independent of Christ. We want nothing to do with that life. We want to be God-dependent people, right? The opposite of this would be we put confidence in the Spirit with a capital S and the, the power of the Spirit of God. The opposite of that is we put confidence in the flesh, the life lived independent of the Spirit of God for merits. You know, it's interesting there in verse 3 that that verb tense of put no confidence in the flesh, see that verb, ten, the verb there? That's a perfect tense. And a perfect tense means this. It's a completed action in the past 
with the results continuing into the present. Get that? A completed action in the past with the results continuing into the present. You might translate this this way. We are in the present state of having put no confidence in the flesh. It's a completed action in the past with the results continuing into the present. In other words, we, we stand in the present as those who put no confidence in the flesh. Put it in perspective. Put it in layman's term, Pastor Campus. It means this, that my present conviction as a Christian is that not only did I die to the mighty self in some moment in the past upon my conversion, but that now in the present I live with the heartfelt conviction that any works, any abilities, any talents are not the ground of my salvation. Christ is the ground of my salvation in boasting. That's what it means. I put no confidence in the flesh because you see, it's one thing for us to believe in the past upon conversion, whenever that was for you, right? That you had your ground for boasting was in Jesus alone. It's quite another thing to live in the present with the ongoing results of that, with the realization that you're not justified by anything that you do in your good works. And we are such guilt-driven people, right? If you're walking by the Spirit and you want to be holy and you want to be like Jesus, it's oftentimes that we get so down on ourselves because we are imperfect and we know that we're flawed people, right? Seeking to live by grace. Oh, Paul says, listen, what is your ground for boasting? Whether at the moment of your conversion or even now in your ongoing sanctification, make sure that you remember that even the good things that you see in your life are things that are being empowered and produced by the Spirit of God. They're not of the flesh. How about you today? Do you live with this present heartfelt conviction that it's all about Jesus and that even now your good works, right, are the workmanship of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship. We are His masterpiece. We are His poema created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works. Notice, not on the basis of good works, but for or unto good works. Do you give glory to Christ by that? That those good works are energized by Christ and for Christ. That He and He alone receives the glory, not you. Because true Christians are those who rejoice in Christ alone and who shun reliance or self-achievement. Whether at the moment of our conversion, right? When we came and said, Lord, there's nothing that I have. I have empty hands of faith. Here are my, here's my sin, Please deal with it. But do you live with that sense even now, five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty, forty years that you've been walking with the Lord? Is it, I'm coming to the cross every day, Lord. There's nothing that I do outside of your divine enablement. Thank you. It's all because of Christ. And so listen, make sure that you truly, sincerely are cultivating a heart for God, a heart of worship, right? True Christians live God-consciously. We live in the presence of God, ascribing worth and value to Him from the heart in the quietness of our devotion times every single day when you wake up tomorrow or you do your devotion later or in your small groups or when we gather corporately and collectively. It's all about a heart of worship for the true Christian, right? We want to make sure that our hearts are engaged and set aflame by the glory of Christ as we behold Him on the pages of His Word and respond in worship. Now, Paul used to be the opposite, right? That's his whole point here. He was one who was deceived into thinking that he was offering God true worship, but he came to realize that he was not offering true worship, that his trust was not in Christ alone. He was a misguided, misdirected, ill-informed individual. And so this is where he goes next and where we go next. Secondly, true Christians place their confident trust in Christ alone. Write that down. True Christians place their confident trust in Christ alone. Look at verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul says, you want to see the supreme example of one who placed confidence in his works? Look at me. I was on the forefront of those who placed confidence in their human achievement as a way to gain favor with God. And in order to illustrate this, he mentioned seven credentials that he used to boast in prior to Jesus. 
These are badges of honor, seven badges of honor that Paul would point to as the ground or the basis of his standing before God. And we're going to hang these seven on two primary subpoints, okay? The first four have to do with the vanity of race or ethnic credentials. The vanity of race or ethnic credentials. And as we walk through these, we want to see that salvation is not based on these things. Notice. We need to recognize that salvation is not based upon external observance or ritual. Salvation is not based upon external observance or ritual. Look in verse 5. Paul says, you want to see a badge of honor? I was circumcised the eighth day. He says, I, was a, I am an eighth dayer. Circumcised on the eighth day. Remember that the Judaizers taught that if you're truly of the people of God, you need to add circumcision to your faith in Christ. It sort of completes your faith in Jesus, right? Add circumcision to this. Paul says, you want to talk about circumcision? I followed that to the T. I'm an eighth dayer, which means he was no proselyte, right? A proselyte was a Gentile who was converted to Judaism, adopted the ways of Judaism. Paul is not a proselyte converted to Judaism from paganism. No, he says, I am an authentic Jew by birth. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an eighth dayer. How about that for a badge of honor? And so if these false teachers were imposing on people that salvation was completed by keeping of the law or even circumcision, guess what? Paul did it by the book. By the letter of the law, he did it. And yet later on in verse 7 and verse 8, what is he saying? This is loss. This is rubbish in comparison to entering into a right relationship with Christ by faith and faith alone, right? Because salvation does not come through external religious ritual or observance. Perhaps for us, it would be the observance of baptism as a way to be saved. The observance of church attendance, communion, service, even giving, right? These things, brethren, that I just mentioned and everything else are things that are wonderful and good for us to be walking in obedience in these areas, but they are the ready fruit of a gospel-transformed life, not the root of it. See the difference? The root of our justification is the person and the work of Jesus. The fruit of a gospel-transformed life and of a heart that truly worships are those things lived out of a heart of worship and joy and love. And adoring God in the light of the great salvation that He's accomplished in us, right? They are not the root of our justification. Salvation is through personal faith in Christ. Second, recognize that salvation is not based upon not only external observance or ritual, but also nationalistic affiliation. Salvation is not based upon nationalistic affiliation. In verse 5, Paul says, you want another credential, another badge of honor? I am of the nation of Israel. I am an Israelite. Some of these Judaizers may claim Jewishness because they were converted to Judaism, right? They were proselytes, if you will. But Paul is a Jew by birth and by blood. He says, I belong to the very ethnic people of God, he says. I am in, of the nation of Israel. I am a true Israelite possessing all the rights, all the privileges, all the badges of honor, all the accolades of an ethnic Jew. I am a pure Israelite, he says. What do I make of this? Verse 8, loss, rubbish, literally human excrement, rubbish. That's how I consider what I consider to be that badge of honor, he says, because salvation is not based upon nationalistic affiliation. And in case you think this doesn't apply to us, just recognize this. There are people who live in our American country who buy into this kind of mindset in Christian churches. How so? They think that because they are Americans, born and raised in America, that they are Christians. And that automatically makes them Christians. Because they were born into what they say is a, a nation of God, a, a Christian nation, which really America is not a Christian nation. Have you looked around and looked at the news lately? Not a Christian nation. There are also folks who believe that they are Christians because they were born into a Christian family. 
That because you have parents, right, who are professing believers in the context of your home, that automatically, by osmosis, you become a Christian too because your parents profess Jesus. That you are a believer. And working with youth over the years, this is super common, not only from students that I've counseled, but parents of students who come in and say they want me to help their kid, and they say, look, they've grown up in the church. I don't know what's going on. Just so you know, they've grown up in the church, and they are Christians. They are believers. But then you look at their lifestyle, and the whole reason why they came into my office is because they're living as rebel people, right? And they don't see that. And there's no love for the Lord, no fruit, no evidence of saving faith, no affections for Christ, no desire to obey, no desire to worship from the heart, no desire to even obey their parents. No, listen to me. If you're sitting in here this morning, young person, you need to do business with God personally yourself. You are not saved because you were raised in a Christian home. You are not raised because your father and mother are believers or professing believers. You are not saved, any one of us, because we were born in an American country that we call a nation of God. We're not Christians because we were born in the United States. No. You need to do business with God. Each of us must personalize our faith and make sure that we hold, take a hold of our faith in Christ. To make that personal commitment to repent from our sins and to put our confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Third, recognize that salvation is not based upon social rank, not only external observance or ritual, nationalistic affiliation, but recognize that salvation is not based upon your social rank or social bracket. Notice in verse 5, he says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that important? Well, you know, He could have highlighted Judah. He's not from Judah, but he could have highlighted Judah, right, from which the Messiah came from. But why does he emphasize Benjamin for this reason? Because in the Old Testament, Benjamin is always presented as an elite tribe. Just go back in the Old Testament. Look at all the references pointing to Benjamin and what it said about Benjamin. It was an elite tribe amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, the cream of the crop kind of tribe. If you recall from your Bible reading, remember, Benjamin was the younger of two sons born to Rachel, and Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Benjamin was the baby and the favored one of Jacob. Remember that in Genesis, in your Bible reading? It was Benjamin who was the only son of Jacob actually born in the Promised Land. When Israel went to battle, guess who was on the front lines? Most often the Benjamites because they were the greatest warriors and the most prestigious people amongst the armies of Israel. It was Benjamin that the first king of Israel came from. King Saul, according to 1 Samuel chapter 9. What tribe was he from? The tribe of Benjamin. Later, upon conquering most of the land, it was Benjamin who was allotted the land which included, ready for this, the city of Jerusalem. The portion of land allotted to Benjamin included Jerusalem. The holy city, according to Judges one twenty one. During the divided kingdom, when the kingdom was split in two, it was Benjamin who stayed with the southern kingdom of Judah and stayed loyal to the Davidic dynasty. Benjamin stayed with the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, the other ten tribes, Right? This appeared, so to speak, from the biblical record, and the focus now becomes the southern kingdom Judah. Benjamin was loyal to the southern kingdom. And during the time of Esther, you remember this. Remember the guy by the name of Mordecai? Remember that guy? He was used by God to preserve the people of Israel. Guess whose tribe Mordecai was from? Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. So Paul says, folks, you want to talk about prestigious social rank? I'm from the tribe of of Benjamin. I'm from the most prestigious of tribes. I belong to the elite amongst the elite. But now that I've met Christ, that means nothing, right? It's loss. It's rubbish in comparison to being in relationship with Christ. And the fact that I belong to Benjamin doesn't score me any brownie points with God. It doesn't gain me any merit before the Lord. Because salvation doesn't come by external observance or ritual, nationalistic affiliation, or social rank or status. Think about that. Fourth, salvation is not based upon cultural tradition. Salvation is not based upon cultural tradition. Look in verse 5. 
Paul says that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that means primarily two things. That his parents are Hebrew descent, right? But even more importantly, he inherited then a Hebrew culture, Hebrew heritage, Hebrew language, Hebrew customs, Hebrew traditions, etc., etc., etc. During that time, there were many Jews who were dispersed, as you know, and had been scattered all over the place, including Philippi, by the way. And because of the dispersions, a lot of these Hebrews or Jews had been heavily influenced by their Greco-Roman world. They had become what is called Hellenized. They had lost their Hebrewness, if you will, their culture. And they had become Hellenized. Hellenized is the word, the Greek word Helen, meaning Gentile. They had adopted the customs of the non-Jews, of even pagan worship around them. They had adopted the Greco-Roman world. Paul says, not me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. With the culture, accolades, traditions, and language of the Hebrews, he says. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Yes, he had a Roman citizenship, but remember who he studied under? Paul studied, according to Acts 22, verse 3, he studied under this guy named Gamaliel, the chief teacher amongst the Jews, the chief scholar amongst the Jews. So Paul had learned fluent Hebrew. He was devoted to Hebrew traditions of the strictest order under the greatest teacher, rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. But how does he view this now post-Jesus? Rubbish, loss, bankruptcy, he says. It matters nothing to me. Because it doesn't matter what cultural traditions you come from. None of those earn you any brownie points before the Lord. They don't gain you any favor or merit before the Lord. Following in the religious or cultural traditions of your parents or country doesn't save you. Listen to me, just because you may even follow conservative Christian values and moralism, that doesn't gain you any favor before God either. Because Christianity doesn't equal moralism, right? Are there implications, moral implications for being a Christian and following after Jesus? Absolutely, right? They are all spelled out here in the character of the holiness of God. And when there are moral implications for being a believer as the fruit of the root, yes, But Christianity doesn't equal moralism. Moralism is not the gospel. It's not. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen? And so you see the first four of these outline the vanity of Paul's race or ethnic credentials. But now Paul points to three religious accomplishments or credentials that prior to Jesus he put his trust in. We'll call these the vanity of religious credentials. If the first four were the vanity of race or ethnic credentials, right? The latter three are the vanity of religious credentials. Look at this. And we learn that salvation, first and foremost, is not by religious conformity. Look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. Paul says, here's another thing I used to trust in as to the law. He says, I was a Pharisee. You want to know how committed I was to the law? I was a Pharisee prior to Jesus. You think that salvation is based upon obedience to the law? He says, I'm the cream of the crop. I was an elite law-abiding person, a law-abiding Jew, even to the point where history will tell us outside of the, the biblical record that Paul probably belonged to the elitist amongst the Pharisees, from a family, most likely, that were all embedded and ingrained, deeply ingrained in Phariseeism. He says, I was a Pharisee, right? The Pharisees were the elite fighting fundies, the fundamentalists of Jesus' day. Listen, they were the extreme, radical, strict, literal, legalistic, rigiders, uh, rigid interpreters of the law. They were the separatists from anything that they deemed, not by the standard of God's Word, but based upon their own traditions and rabbinical interpretations, anything that they deemed that they needed to be separate from, they did it. And they imposed heavy burdens upon others as well that were extra-biblical outside of the law of God, which was good and righteous and holy, right? Pharisees. Paul says, I'm one of those guys of the strictest perspective possible as to the law, he says, a Pharisee. You know, there are many religious people like this today. 
People who trust in their religious conformity, which doesn't save. I remember traveling to Asia to one of the biggest Buddhist temples in the world, and I have seen this firsthand, brethren, monks wearing long robes, shaved heads, incense everywhere, trusting in their religious conformity, and even poor young couples who couldn't have babies going up to the the, uh, fertility Buddhas and the monks pleading that somehow they would be able to open up their womb when they didn't have the power to do that. Super committed to their religious conformity as a way to gain favor before the deity of their choice. They're gods with a little g. I've seen it. And you've seen it probably too. I've been to Mexico City and visited one of the largest Catholic churches in the world. Hear me. People on their hands and on their blooded knees traveling up the stairs, beating their breasts, pleading for God's forgiveness just to appease their conscience before God and before the priests. Trusting in religious conformity on the outside. There are other other examples that we can give. Listen, whether you're a Buddhist, Catholic, Muslim, a version of Judaism, or even if you're in a conservative Christian church like ours, if you are trusting in those things, it doesn't matter. Those works are not the ground or the basis of your justification before God. Christ and Christ alone is. Salvation is not by religious conformity. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Salvation is not by religious commitment. Salvation is not by religious commitment. Look at verse 6. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, he says. You see that? Zeal was huge for the religious Jews of the day. Zeal was considered a great virtue, right? If you possess zeal, it signified commitment of the highest level to Judaism. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, commends his countrymen, his fellow Israelites, for their zeal, though he says that they're misguided. They're misdirected because they reject Jesus. He says, and prior to his conversion, Paul too was a zealous man. Even to the point, brethren, of persecuting Christians and being responsible for Christians dying during those days. Because he believed that Christianity was a rebel religion against God's true religion, Judaism. That's how zealous Paul was prior to that Saul. And so he says, Judaizers, you think you're zealous? I went so far in my zeal to even have Christians killed because of that misguided, misdirected, ill-informed zeal that rejected Jesus, the true Messiah. And I boasted in that. People knew that I was that zealous. Later on, Paul would repent of this. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church. Because I persecuted those who were followers of Christ, he says. He was sinfully guilty of a misguided, misdirected, ill-informed, corrupt zeal. Right, But now... Post-Jesus, his zeal was informed by the truth of Christ so that his zeal, a good thing, was now rightly aimed at exalting Christ and making much of Christ, not self-achievement. That's a good kind of zeal, isn't it? Zeal is good if your zeal is fueled by a desire to see Jesus exalted through his word, right? In this desperately sick and dying world. That's good zeal. That's godly zeal. Fueled by the power of Christ. And for His glory. Listen, like Paul, the world is filled with religiously committed, zealous people devoid of saving faith. Just like Him, He was before Christ. And because we live in an age of tolerance in our culture, you know what the typical person says about people who are zealous for their religious persuasion or their ideologies and all of that? In our culture, people say, hey, as long as they're committed, these zealous people, as long as they're committed to their religious system or their ideological system and they stay on their lane, we're all okay. We're all good, right? Let them be zealous. All roads lead to heaven anyway. Just do you. Isn't that the slogan? Just do you. Morally speaking, just do you. And guess what? Just do you as far as what you believe in. Your truth is your truth. No one has a right to tell you anything about any kind of objective standard of truth. Truth is what you make of it. It is subjective. It is relative. It's however you define truth. Truth is reality. Your reality is your reality. And as long as you don't impose it on my reality, we're all good. We all can get along. That's why we have great community together in our country, right? Amongst liberal people. 
All power to you. Be zealous for your truth and we're good, right? Listen to me. That type of zeal for your truth as you define it, no matter how convinced you are that biblical Christianity and the Bible is not the truth and your truth is your truth, rejecting Jesus, that is a damning and corrupt type of zeal. It doesn't save you. Only Jesus alone saves. Exclusively the person and the work of Jesus. And we are never to make apologies for that. I hope you believe that in your heart. Hear all these crazy movements, all these crazy objects of worship and all of that. Do you really believe that it's by grace, through faith in Christ alone? That He's the Savior exclusively? Not Jesus and sprinkling, Jesus 90% or, 90, or 99% and sprinkling in a little bit of other ideologies like these religious leaders were saying, right? It's Jesus plus this. It's Jesus plus that. I hope you don't believe that, brother and sister. You're not buying into the ideological Kool-Aid of our culture, right? For Paul, it doesn't matter how committed he was to his distorted system. He was wrong because he rejected Jesus. He rejected the one who is the only source of truth and fuel for his righteous zeal. Salvation is only found in the Lord Jesus and not based upon some misguided religious commitment devoid of saving faith in Christ. Finally, Salvation is not by religious merit. Salvation is not by religious merit. Notice in verse 6, the end of verse 6. As to the righteousness which is in the law, he says, found blameless. Paul is not saying here that he was blameless before God, right? Because God's standard is perfection. You shall be perfect, right, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's not saying blameless before God or that he was perfect, right, morally perfect. What he's saying is that as it pertained to pharisaical expectations of the day to adherence to the law, he was above reproach. He was. Those who knew Paul could speak to the fact that he was a law-abiding Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. They could attest to the fact that he was a devout Pharisee, that he was not compromising. He was morally upright, at least externally speaking. They could attest to that. And yet, and yet Paul came to realize that salvation was not based upon any religious or human merit. He came to realize that a downgraded form of moralism couldn't save him because God's moral requirement is absolute holiness and perfection. And the only one who has scored a perfect 10 and whose righteousness we need is the person in the work of Jesus, right? He is the only one who scored a perfect 10. We need His righteousness. You know, in our circles today, we tend to focus on immorality and homosexuality and lesbianism and all of those terrible, destructive sins that damn people to hell. Yes, if they don't repent and put their faith in Jesus. We focus on those immoral things and it is serious sin. However, an equally worse type of sin, brothers and sisters, is a type of moralism where you actually deceive yourself into thinking that you can actually please God and that God grades on a curve. And that as long as when you face God someday, your good works outweigh your bad works, right? God will let you into His heaven. He'll lower the bar because after all, He's a loving God. No. Moralism is not the gospel. This is self-deception. And Jesus had the strongest words during His earthly life against the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were the legalists. Not those who had commandments. We have commandments in God's Word. That's not legalism, right? For us to obey God's Word and God's commandments. They were adding to God's Word. They were imposing upon people heavy burdens that they couldn't even keep themselves. And Jesus had the strongest words for these guys who were the moralists of His day. Not just the explicitly immoral people of His day. Both are damning, right? Neither one is Christ-centered salvation and Christ-centered sanctification. And the reason why moralism is so bad is because it's based upon, brethren, a diminished view of God and of His holiness. We fool ourselves into thinking that He accepts the filthy rags of our good works, right? That somehow it's going to be good enough. But God is an infinitely holy, morally perfect, pure, righteous God whose standard is absolute perfection and He requires from those who will stand in His presence absolute holiness if we're going to stand. This is why we need the alien outside of ourselves righteousness of Christ, right? And according to the law, none of us 
Detached from that righteousness, measure up to God's perfect holiness. Each of us fall terribly short. And so we dare not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can gain His favor through religious merit. We cannot do that. What's needed then? What's needed if we are to be saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Do you recognize this morning that if you are not in Christ, if you've not turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that the arrow of God's wrath is aimed in your direction? Do you understand that? And one day you're going to face your maker. You're going to face the great judge. And you're going to have to pay for every single one of your sins forever and ever and ever. And yet what God offers us is an alien righteousness outside of our own righteousness, and that righteousness is the righteousness of the person and the work of Jesus. Amen? That's good news right there, isn't it? That's the great exchange. That's the great exchange that only biblical Christianity that is only found in God's Word, the great exchange that our sin in salvation is placed upon Jesus and His righteousness, His perfect sinless life that you cannot live, but He lived. His atoning death, because you need to pay for your sins. He paid for sins, right? His atoning death and His glorious resurrection, conquering sin and death, is credited or counted to your account. That is the great exchange. Our sin placed upon Jesus. Jesus' righteousness placed upon us. I don't know what if there's a greater offer than that in this world, right? That's the gospel, the good news. The great exchange that God offers to sinners who deserve hell and condemnation such as us. You see why Paul is so fervent and so, so zealous about them not giving in to these things, to these false teachers, to just sprinkle a little bit of something else. As long as you have 99% Jesus, you put up 1% of works, it's okay. No, Paul says, absolutely not, because souls are at stake, he says. No, beware, beware, beware. And so let me ask you, have you by faith been clothed in this righteousness? Have you by faith come to repent from your sin and place your confidence, trust, confident trust in the Lord Jesus alone? It's a, it's a transfer of trust from yourself and your good works to the Lord Jesus Christ alone if you are to appropriate fa- uh, salvation to your life, right? You cannot trust in human achievement, selfish achievement that's by grace through faith in Christ alone, that we can be saved. Christians who stand firm in the gospel, brethren and friends, trust in Christ alone and not in their self-achievement. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is enough. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful grace and the wonderful power of your gospel that we're reminded of that if we're going to stand firm, we need to shun self-achievement not only at the beginning of our Christian walk, but also now into the present. Lord, help us to live in our sanctification, dependent upon you and even the good works that we see in our lives, that we might remember that it's all about Christ and Christ empowering us for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our brethren around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.